G'day, everybody. Please uh, keep that passage open. Uh, you really want to be following along tonight more than usual. Uh, stories are very powerful things. They, uh, they do more than impart information to us. Stories impact our mood. They, uh, they change the way we feel. You know that when you go to the movies. Uh, so if you pick the wrong movie on a Friday night... You know, if you go to the movies when you're, you're dead tired after when you pick the wrong movie, it can, it can ruin your whole weekend sort of thing. Uh, I remember back when Victoria and I used to go to movies on a Friday night, which is over 20 years ago, uh, we went and uh, it was after a long week at work and I thought, ah, oh, let's see something light and there was this movie there and it was uh, period drama, I, I, we were just married so I thought, oh, Victoria will love this, you, you know, they, they, they dress in nice clothes and it's a couple hundred years ago, it's like Jane Austen. And I thought, it's, it's been nominated for six Academy Awards. It must be a bit like Pride and Prejudice. It'll be good. Uh, it was called Wings of the Dove. Has anyone ever seen that movie? Never see it. <laughs> Never see it. It was awful. Absolutely awful. It was horrible people doing horrible things to one another for a couple of hours, except dressed in nice clothes. That was about the extent of Wings of the Dove. got to the end of the movie, and Victoria was just sobbing. We had to sit in the cinema for 20 minutes and wait for her to get us. I was angry. And so, there, you know, there goes our romantic dinner on a Friday night after that one. Because stories have that power. Stories shape your mood. They, they impact you like that. So, in that sense, how did you feel as you listened to that reading from John 19, as you followed along? Perhaps you hadn't yet sort of settled yourself down, so you weren't actually paying attention. But, but as, you, as you read the story of the death of Jesus, how does it make you feel? hearing the story of his death. You see, I'm a pretty rational sort of person. Usually I'd ask, what do you think about it? But here I'm asking, how does it make you feel? I think all people, whether they believe Jesus is the Son of God or not, so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I think all people get some sense of anger uh, as they read the story of Jesus. Because I, I don't care whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not. Well, I do. I care deeply whether you believe Jesus is the Son of God or not, but, but even if you don't, you read this and you say, this is unfair, this is evil, this is humanity at its worst, the fact they did this awful thing to an innocent man who they knew he was innocent, the story must create anger in you, that's one of the emotional responses, it must create sadness, those, those negative reactions, but for the Christian, yes, we feel that response, but it's not our only response. I think if you're a Christian, as you read this, you find yourself strangely mixed up as you read John 19. I do, because on the one hand, I, I do feel angry, I do feel this sadness at what happened to Jesus, but then mixed in with that, I feel joy and I feel thankfulness because we know that this wasn't just a random historical event. You see, this sort of thing happens every day in our world and has happened every day for thousands of years. Innocent people are killed and tortured in our world, sadly. At some part, in some country right now, there are innocent people. I've just got to repent of what I want to do to that driver. But the, see, in our world, innocent people, are, this is not unusual, what happens to Jesus. This is all too common in history. But you see, for us, we know Jesus wasn't dying for nothing. This wasn't like so many of those other innocent deaths. He was dying for our sins. For the Christian, that's the most important phrase we know, isn't it? Jesus died for our sins, for our forgiveness. See, and that's why the cross of Christ, this event, is the absolute centre of our faith, isn't it? 
Even though we are sinners who deserve, this is the essence of Christianity, even though we are sinners who deserve God's judgment, He sent His Son not to judge us, but to take the judgment for us, to die in our place, to take the punishment we deserve. And for that reason, Jesus' death is not just this awful travesty of justice, it's also the place where we see the love of God in all its glory. Every song we sing, every prayer we pray, everything we say here at church, we say, thank you God that Jesus was willing to die for me. Which means today's passage must and will always create these mixed emotional responses in us. On the one hand, darkest day of history, where you see humanity at its worst, where humanity rejected God once and for all, but on the other hand, the most wonderful day where we see the love of God most clearly. So I want to work through the story now, this is why I want you to have it open in front of you, and as we go, we're just going to pull out the little details that help us understand what's happening, and I hope that's helpful, but really my hope is that at the end, like me, as I've been reading it all week, you'll just sort of walk out of here amazed by what, willing, what Jesus was willing to do for you. That's really what I want to see tonight. So let's go, let's get into it, please open your Bibles, John 19, go to verse 16, and you'll see there it says, therefore they took Jesus away. So that therefore casts us back two Sundays ago, we had a week off last week, but two Sundays ago when we read about Jesus's trial, if you can call it a trial, where Pilate, the Roman governor, even though he knew Jesus was innocent, Pilate gave in to public pressure, he gave in to the Jewish leaders and he sentenced Jesus to die by crucifixion, which was the worst kind of death they'd been able to come up with at that point. So they forced Jesus to carry his own cross, it tells us there, that was normal, that wasn't something special for Jesus because the soldiers weren't going to carry your cross for you, you can carry it yourself, you're the guy going to your death. And they lead him out of the city and they go to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we don't know if it was called that because it looked like a skull or if it's because of what they did there that it was called the place of the skull, we don't know. But either way, it's very matter of fact. Look at verse 18. It says, there they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us more about those two men on the, in, on the side of him. But I think the point here is, John doesn't go into that detail, the point here is Jesus wasn't getting special treatment. They were just treating him like a common criminal, because that's what these men were. But of course, there was something special about Jesus, and Pilate couldn't resist making something of it. So he puts this sign above Jesus' head, look there in verse 19, and the sign says, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now, Pilate didn't believe that, it wasn't like he'd had a conversion experience between the trial and sending Jesus, it was not that he didn't believe he was the King of the Jews, he was doing this purposely to annoy all the Jews, that's the type of guy Pilate was. He was saying, this is your King, you hopeless people, this is your King, someone we nailed to a cross and he was making a statement, this is what happens to you if you want to follow anyone other than Caesar, if you want to follow anyone other than the King of Rome. And lots of the Jews complained to him, they wanted to change, they said, we don't think he's the king of the Jews, he just says he's the king of the Jews, but for once, Pilate doesn't cave in and he leaves it there. And the thing is, even though he didn't mean it, Pilate was being a prophet, wasn't he? He was stating the truth, whether he believed it or not, he was stating the truth, Jesus was the king of the Jews, Jesus was the Messiah God had promised. And more than that, do you notice how it stresses that Pilate had it printed out in three languages. So look there at uh, verse 20, it tells you Hebrew or Aramaic, Latin and Greek. 
That, that was the languages of that world. That meant every person there could read that sign. No one walked by and said, what does that say? Everyone could read it. It was there for everyone to see. Now, Pilate was doing that to make sure they understood, this is what happens to you if you dare challenge Rome. But in God's providential way, it just reminds us that Jesus is not just for the Jews. People from every nation, every tribe, every language need to know Jesus as their king. The salvation Jesus offers is for the whole world. But now we leave Pilate behind and we focus in on Jesus on the cross. And again, John just picks up a little detail that he shares with us. Look at verse 23. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. This is this sounds silly but it's true this, this was sort of like tips for a waiter today soldiers just got to take whatever they wanted off the person who was being crucified just a perk of the job if you're a roman soldier so they got to take his clothes because jesus didn't have very much but then why do they include this next little part of the story look at verse 23 it says they also took the tunic which was seamless woven in one piece from the top so they said to one another let's not tear it but cast lots for it to see who gets it now, of course, it's included because it happened, but, but lots of things happen that John doesn't include. So why does he include this? Well, look at what it says next. It said, they did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. See, the scripture they're talking about there is Psalm 22. And you can go home tonight and read Psalm 22. I encourage you to do it. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus, it was written by King David. So a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And for the soldiers, this was, this was just a game. You know, they just wanted one of them to win the tunic in the, in the prize. But without realising it, they were fulfilling what God had said a thousand years before in the Old Testament. And we'll see this again and again in the rest of this passage. Jesus is fulfilling what God had promised. Do you know, for me, 20-something years ago, when I was trying to work out, is Jesus real and worth following? I was trying to work out, do I just live for this world or do I actually follow this Jesus? This was massively influential for me. This was the thing that intellectually convinced me to become a Christian. The fact that the Old Testament events recorded over more than a thousand-year period, written by all these different human authors, the fact that they all so amazingly point forward to Jesus and find their fulfilment in Jesus, that more than anything else convinced me to believe in him and trust the Bible. Now, I know a cynic would argue, oh, Jesus and the gospel writers, they must have contrived it and engineered it. Well, for Jesus and the 12 apostles, that was a fairly costly hoax, I think, given they all died for it. But aside from it, if it's not true, if the Bible is the most clever, elaborate hoax in history, if it's not true, it is the most incredible and clever literary work in the history of humanity. See, it makes other so-called religious books, which are all by one author who just says, trust me, I got a message from God, it just makes them pale into insignificance in comparison. These 66 books, written over more than a thousand year period, by lots of different human authors, all coming together in Christ. And finding their fulfillment in Jesus. See, I know for most of us here, you're like me, you're amazed by the way Christ fulfills the Old Testament. But if you are someone here tonight who is uncertain, 
Uh, if you're someone here tonight who's never considered the claims of Jesus, can I encourage you not just to write it off? Read it for yourself and see this. Give it a chance to convince you. But back to the story, because the next little moment shows us something different. It shows us the incredible personal love of Jesus. So just take a step back for a moment, think about this. Here is the Son of God, dying for the sins of the whole world. Here is the Son of God, not just physically suffering, but spiritually suffering. See, on on the cross, the, the pain Jesus experienced wasn't just nails in His wrists and in His feet. He was experiencing the wrath, the condemnation of His Father for the sin of all of humanity for all of time. So He was not just physically suffering, He was spiritually suffering hell on the cross. But then in the midst of all that, He looks down and He cares for the individuals watching on. Look from verse 25. It says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple He loved, that's how John refers to Himself, when He saw them standing there, He said to His mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. See, even at this point, Jesus is concerned to care for his mother. Even at this point, Jesus is aware, my mother is losing her son. She is losing her son, her eldest son. And without him in that culture, as a mother whose eldest son is dead, and as the mother of a man crucified, she was in an awful position. So Jesus asked John to care for her, to provide for her. Now people say, why didn't he ask his younger brothers? You have to remember at this point, they weren't even Christians yet. They weren't even disciples. The last interaction we'd have with Jesus' brothers is them telling him he was crazy and saying, come back to Nazareth and make chairs again. Stop this Messiah nonsense. So he asked John to care for Mary. We often talk about how Jesus is without sin. We talk about how Jesus is the one person who never sinned, the only person who has ever kept all of God's law, who is truly righteous. That's why He can pay the price for our sins. Well, here is Jesus' righteousness in practice. This is Jesus obeying the fifth commandment, honour your father and your mother. In fact, I think Jesus' relationship with Mary is a model for us of how we should honour our parents as adults actually read through the Gospels, the way Jesus relates to Mary is the model for you as an adult to how you should relate to your mother and your father. You see, it's not just as simple as obey. Jesus disobeyed Mary. If Mary had had a way, Jesus would have given up the whole Messiah business long ago and gone back to Nazareth. Jesus said no to Mary. He said, I'm following my heavenly father before I follow my earthly mother. But he always honoured her. And part of that was ensuring she was cared for and provided for. And that is an obligation Christians have with our own parents, to make sure we honour them and provide for them and care for them. But now back to the passage. And verse 28 tells us we're near the end, look there. It says, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, do you see it again? Do you see the focus on Jesus' thinking? I am accomplishing God's plan. The focus on fulfilling the scriptures, even in the midst of all the horror and all the pain, Jesus is conscious, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament in what I'm doing. So again, to fulfill the Scriptures, look at verse 28, he says, I'm thirsty. I'm sure he was thirsty, it would be thirsty hanging on a cross, but he didn't say, I'm thirsty, because he was thirsty, if that makes sense. 
He said, I'm thirsty because he was conscious, I must fulfill what the Old Testament said about me. And so a jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on Hitzit and held it up to his mouth. That was a natural thing to say. But he did it consciously. Now again, I could go to a load of passages in the Old Testament. I've just picked Psalm 69, another psalm written a thousand years before. And if you look on your outline, I've printed a few verses from Psalm 69. Look there with me. This is David talking, 1000 BC. My throat is parched and for my thirst they gave me vinegar, that's sour wine, to drink. See, again, we see the fulfilment of Scripture. And so at last, verse 30, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I don't think the, the word finished captures it well enough. Uh, I've never re- run a marathon. You might be surprised to hear that, but I've never run a marathon. But I can imagine myself, get, actually I can't imagine myself getting to the end of the marathon, but, but let's just imagine I get to the end of the marathon. I can imagine myself saying, it's finished. And it's sort of like, praise God that that's over and I'm never doing it again. And you can imagine Jesus saying it like that, but the word here actually has more of the sense of, it is complete. It is accomplished. He's saying, I have accomplished what I've come to do, so now I can die. See, he's saying, I have taken the punishment for the sin of all humanity. Now people can be forgiven. He's saying, I have experienced the wrath of God for the sin of the whole world, so now people can be forgiven. Now anyone who trusts in me does not have to face God's wrath for their sin. They can be forgiven. So my work is done. It is finished. That's how he's saying it. And you notice how it's only then that Jesus, look at how it says it, look there. It says, he gave up his spirit. It's not, and he died at that point. Jesus consciously gives up his spirit and this is so important please understand this yes human beings murdered jesus but it wasn't like they caught jesus unaware you see it wasn't as you read this whole thing go back a few weeks as we've looked at john's gospel it wasn't like when they got him in the garden it was like oh that's a surprise jesus knew they were coming and waited for them and it wasn't like in the trial jesus lawyer messed it up And he was trying to get off, but they didn't quite manage it. He just said, no, 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 take me to the cross. See, Jesus was not a helpless victim in this. He was always in control. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus actually said, no one will take my life from me. I will lay it down myself. And that's the point here. You see, in the end, they didn't kill Jesus, even if they thought they had. Once his task was complete, once he paid the price for our sin then Jesus, always in control, then he gives up his spirit. And actually, the people there were surprised that Jesus was already dead, because it was very, very quick. Come with me to verse 31. People could hang around on the cross for days, but look there, verse 31. It says, since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. If you want to see religious hypocrisy at its worst, there it is. Just think about what these Jewish leaders did. They've just managed to get an innocent man crucified and now, just so that they can keep the Sabbath law, they want to torture him some more. Do you see how evil that is? This is humanity, religious humanity at their worst. But the point here is, breaking his legs would speed up his death. That's why they wanted to do it. It was the way you killed them quicker. With broken legs, 
the crucified person couldn't lift their body up anymore to breathe. So you basically drowned on the cross, you suffocated on the cross. That's why they wanted to break his legs. But they didn't need to. Look at verse 33. It says, when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. Now again, do you notice why these things happened? Verse 36, look at verse 36. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. See, that's Psalm 34, that prophecy. And then verse 37, it says, also another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. That's Zechariah 12 that he's referring to there. And as I say, you might want to go and read these passages later. Read Psalm 22, read Psalm 34, read Zechariah 12, read Isaiah 53. And the point is though, yes, this was a horrible injustice. Yes, this is the death of an innocent man. But at the same time, God is in control of everything that happens. That's the point. This is what God said would happen. That's the point. This is what God said would happen when he saved humanity. This is how God said he would do it. If you look there at verse 34, just look there again, that comment about the blood and the water coming out of his side, it's really interesting, isn't it? You you can read articles by doctors who explain why that would have happened. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I really... I studied law because I couldn't handle the sight of blood. That was my thinking. Uh, something, some doctors say it happened because when you have a cardiac arrest, fluid builds up around the heart and they pierced his heart with the sphere. Uh, other people say perhaps they pierced his stomach. And, and so this is the sour wine flowing out with the blood. Other people think all sorts of things, but most people are actually more interested in... You, you can talk to one of the doctors here if you want to talk about that or not. Actually, the nurses will probably know more than the doctors. But um, <laughs> most, most people, though, are more interested in looking for a symbolic meaning in this. You see, and people think, oh, well, Jesus said he was the living water, so maybe it's signifying that. If we come to Jesus, we'll never be thirsty. Uh, that in his death, he is providing eternal life for those who believe. Other people think the water is the sign of the Holy Spirit, which it is in John's Gospel. So they're saying this is symbolic of how Jesus' death gives us the Holy Spirit, Uh, Other people think it's the symbolism of washing clean, you know, how Jesus' blood washes us clean of our sin like water. So in the old hymn, in Rock of Ages, you know, the hymn we sing, that's the way the hymn writer takes it. I've I've got the verse up on the screen, thanks Tom. Do you know how we sing this? Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be for sin a double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's how the hymn writer takes it. Now, You can decide if you think it was meant to signify something like that or not. Personally, I think John just wrote it because it happened. Uh, But whether or not it was meant to have those symbolic senses, all those things are true. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. By dying, Jesus does give us eternal life. Jesus' blood is what washes us clean from the guilt and power of sin. Whether or not it was meant to have that, certainly those things are true. And the point here is, when they plunged that spear into his side, they confirmed he was truly dead. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead three, three days later, there, there was no one who could say, actually, he just sort of passed out on the cross. Now, the Romans knew how to kill someone. Jesus was dead. And for us, that means his work was truly finished. He had paid the price for our sin once and for all. 
Now, at that point, normally, the bodies would have been taken down and thrown into an unmarked grave. You don't do anything special for someone who was crucified. But there's one last little twist. Actually, there's a very big twist, but that's next week when he rises from the dead. Uh, This is a little twist in this story. We get introduced to this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Joseph was a wealthy Jewish leader, but he was actually part of the group who condemned Jesus. Joseph was one of the Sanhedrin, and and, and as they condemned him, he had remained silent. He'd started to believe in Jesus, but he didn't have the courage to stand up for him before he died. But now he screws up enough courage to just go and ask for Jesus' body. It's like he thinks, I must give him a decent burial at least. And Nicodemus, another Jewish leader, do you remember Nicodemus? We met him back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was the guy who came to Jesus with his questions, another Jewish leader, came to Jesus with his questions, but would only do it at night when no one could see him because he was afraid of what they'd say about him. Now he walks out in public and goes with Joseph. This is incredibly brave. See, the rest of the Jewish leaders would have called this treachery. There's no way in the world these men would remain part of the Jewish leadership after this. And frankly, he didn't know what Pilate would do. Pilate was irrational. He's just as likely to kill them as listen to them. But it seems that seeing Jesus die had made them realise Jesus really is special. And we owe him this, at least, whatever it costs us. And understand how costly this was to them. Costly in terms of how people would treat them, costly in terms of their reputation, it was costly financially, this was a wealthy man's tomb, he was giving it up and the 75 pounds of spices they were using, that is about 30 kilos. So go to your spice cabinet and get 30 kilos and you'll see how much it was. It was a massive amount of money. This is actually what you would do for a king. You didn't do this for a normal person's body, you did this for a king. And that's the thing, isn't it? That is what you do when you realise who Jesus is and what he's done. You don't care what people think when you know Jesus. You don't care what it costs to follow him, you just say, Jesus is worth it. And Joseph and Nicodemus, remember this, at this point, all they knew was that Jesus was something special and he didn't deserve what they did to him. That's all they knew. They didn't understand that his death had paid the price for their sins. They didn't know that in three days the tomb would be empty. They didn't know any of that. But they said, I will do this at great personal cost because Jesus is worth following. You see, Joseph and Nicodemus, in their imperfect way, are actually the first true disciples of Jesus. But with what little they knew, they did it. So I want to say to you tonight, and I think Joseph and Nicodemus say this to you tonight, how much more, given what we know, how much more, given what we know, as people living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, as people who know that I have a place in eternity because Jesus died for me, as people who know I have eternal life because Jesus has risen from the dead, how much more, given what we know, should we be willing to stand up and say, I am with Jesus, I believe in Jesus? And how much more, given what we know, should we be willing to stand up and say, I will follow him whatever the cost, whatever the cost? See, that is what Joseph and Nicodemus say to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you have recorded the story of our Lord's death for us. And we pray that like Joseph and Nicodemus before us, we would be willing to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. I am with Jesus. And we would be willing to follow him whatever the cost. 
But more than anything, we thank you that even while we read this story and see the horrible sin of humanity and the injustice of it all, we thank you that we are also amazed by your love, that you sent your son and he was willing not to judge us, but to die for us and take the judgment we deserve. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.